0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. And we'll go ahead and get started here. I know people are kind of settling in, but we'll go ahead and get started. And handouts are coming around, so... (laughs) You You should get three handouts this morning. Well, let me open this up in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful morning, uh, this cold weather that we've had here, Lord. You've sustained us through it, and we're thankful for that. We do pray that you would uh, be with us and bless us now as we open your word, consider wonderful truths about you and the Godhead. Um, we, we thank you for this opportunity to do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Um, so let's take out the first handout for our review, and so far we are up to, we're going to be looking at question uh, 10 primarily today, and also maybe getting into question 11, Uh, but we are going to do some wrap-up on question number 9. As I mentioned last week, we're going to be looking at some of the heresies against the biblical teaching of the Trinity as we start out after our review. Okay. All right, so let's, let's take care of our review here. Question number one, what is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. How doth it appear that there is a God? The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God, but His Word and Spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal Him unto men for their salvation. What is the Word of God? The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. How doth it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? The Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very word of God. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. What do the Scriptures make known of God? The Scriptures make known what God is, the persons in the Godhead, His decrees, and the execution of His decrees. What is God? God is a Spirit, in and of Himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, Incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Let's turn the page over. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Very good. So this morning we are going to, as we move into question 10 after we look at heresies, Uh, Question 10 really answers the question of what were the divines referring to when they and what do the scriptures teach regarding uh, the personal properties of the persons in the Godhead. Okay, and so we're going to look at that here in a few moments. All right. So let's take out the next handout, which is heresies against the biblical teaching of the Trinity. Okay, so we're going to talk about some big words here, kids. Um, and uh, if you need to write them down or if you want to make notes, well, actually, you got a nice handout right there. You don't have to write them down, right? Really. Unless you want to practice your handwriting and you can trace over what the type words are. Right? Okay, so we're going to begin with modalism. Modalism is, I would say, a, a well known big. Uh, Heresy against the Trinity. Docetism out of this list is the other one that is uh, commonly referenced and used. The others, not as much. And so I thought it would be good to uh, open our awareness and expand our our understanding of these things. We're going to see as we go through each of these that the big kind of overarching theme uh, or one of them in uh, in these heresies is referring to and attacking Christ, right? And so uh, we see that to be very common. Um, In modalism, and I see put here in parentheses, for example, Sabalianism, uh, Noetianism, and Patripassianism, okay? Uh, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they would claim, are not distinct persons, but different modes of God's Self-revelation. They regard God as the Father in creation, the Son in redemption, and the Spirit in sanctification. In other words, God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit in different eras, but never as triune. Okay, and that's a, that's a huge error. Now, in, in the details here, and we'll look at some of the examples that kind of fall into and under the umbrella of modalism... Let's look at first Sibelianism. In Sibelianism, we see more in the Eastern Church. Sibelius was a third century priest and a theologian, and he was influenced by Noetus. Now, Noetus, as we see, the Noetianism, that's the next uh, version or branch. We're going to look at Noetus here briefly in a moment. But Sibelius was excommunicated by the Council of Alexandria. Okay? For this very heresy. Noetianism, okay, from Noetus, he was also third century, and he was excommunicated from the church for his heresy of Patripasianism by the presbyters in Ephesus. Okay, so the, the elders in Ephesus stood for scripture, stood for the truth regarding the Trinity and what Scripture truly teaches about the Trinity and the the persons and the Godhead and the triune nature of the Trinity. Um, And they stood for that and excommunicated him, cast him out of the church. Um, And so praise the Lord for their uh, courage and willingness to stand for God's truth. Patripassianism, this is Sibelianism basically in the Western church. Okay, So Sibelian proper, in the Eastern Church, Patripassianism in the Western Church, and they believe that God the Father became directly incarnate in the Son and therefore sacrificed Himself on the cross. Okay, So that that was the Father's work in and through the Son even directly, which of course is heresy. Tritheism. Tritheism is the belief that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are three independent divine beings. Okay? They are all, they are three separate gods who share the same substance. Okay? So although they would agree with the divines that the, the three persons are uh, co-substantial, uh, they're not just three persons in one God, they're three gods. right They just all happen to be of the same substance. Really, that's a polytheism uh, that they would be believing there. And again, that is heresy. Arianism. This, this belief says that the pre preexistent Christ was the first and greatest of God's creatures. Okay, And we can see where Jehovah's Witnesses kind of have this flair. Not kind of, they do have this flair and undergirding of an Arian uh, heresy there the first and greatest of God's creatures denying Christ's deity. Alexandrian priest Arius was involved in what became the Arian controversy in the fourth century. And his teaching that Jesus was neither co-eternal with the Father and wasn't of the same substance was refuted, and that's well known, right, Uh, refuted by the Council of Nicaea. And we see the response and the defense of the true faith uh, in the Nicene Creed, which we confess regularly. Docetism. Docetism believes that Jesus is a purely divine being who only had the appearance of being human. Sometimes when we talk about docetism, you may have heard me say in the past that uh, Christ wasn't just a phantasm, right? He didn't just appear to be a man, but he really wasn't in substance a man, right? Um, regarding his suffering, some taught that Jesus' divinity abandoned or left him upon the cross, while others claim that he only appeared to suffer, much like he only appeared to be human, okay? So that is the docetist heresy, Ebionitism, the Ebionites of the first century taught that while Jesus was endowed with particularly charismatic gifts which distinguish him from other humans, but nonetheless he was just a man. They denied his deity. Okay. So again, you see this thread on the attack of Christ and the denial of his deity or also the denial of his true humanity. Right? And both of those attack... The doctrine of the hypostatic union, right, which is the truth that Christ is the incarnate God; He is 100% God and 100% man. Um, and uh, these these heresies attacked from either side of those things, of that truth. Macedonianism. This is a heresy, actually, against the Spirit. Okay. The Holy Spirit was or is a created being, and he was created by the Son, right? And some took that, and we're going to actually be looking at um, the procession of the Spirit in question 10, right? But some took the Scriptures and and misinterpreted and misapplied it to say that, ah, well, the, the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. The Spirit proceeds from them, so therefore he must be some created being. But that is not true, and we're going to look at more of why here in uh, questions ten and eleven. Adoptionism, okay, and adoptionism is what is referred to as dynamic monarchianism. In the second, this is a second-century heresy, where monarchianism affirmed the sole deity of God the Father. Adoptionism taught that Jesus was born completely human and, because of his sinless life, was only later chosen and adopted by the Father, either at his baptism, resurrection, or ascension, um, using and recognizing the Son language in relation between the Father and the Son. But getting that relationship and that dynamic completely wrong in terms of what Scripture truly teaches. So again, monarchianism affirmed the sole deity of God the Father, and adoptionism taught that Jesus was born completely human, but because he was sinless, therefore God adopted him later on um, because of his work. Partialism. This is the last one we're going to look at. This uh, teaches that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit together are components of one God. Therefore, each of the persons of the Trinity is only part God, only becoming fully God when they come together. Okay, so um, also a huge heresy. Why would that be a heresy? Let's tease that apart. Why would that be a heresy? Why would saying that each of the persons is only part God until they come together. Why would that be a problem? Anyone? Go for it. Elder, love, oh, You you To lower it, right? So when you're taking that away. You're lowering your glory. You're lowering your Majesty. You're also lowering what they can do. He's also not schizophrenic, right? So he's not. I'm God, God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, right? Right. Eternal, right. 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 Yes, they are each, each of the persons fully God, right? And, uh, and so that is yeah an important, those are important points to make. Appreciate y'all bringing those up. And those are true that um, each person is fully God. And um, yes, we do serve one God in three persons, but each of the persons is God. All right, very good. So I just wanted to kind of uh, orient you and, and expose you a bit to some of the ancient heresies. Again, if you look back at the time frames here, these are all third, fourth, second, even first century heresies that were affecting the early church. Yeah, I have I just uh, Was the Chalcedonian definition to. Reject one of these specifically, or was it just kind of as a, as a whole for the church to, to kind of say, this is, this is what we do in concerning Christ? In concerning Christ, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it came out what was it, like, 400 or 400? Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, um, I, think it was, I think it was some of both, okay. right? That it was a defense against, but it was also a proclamation of. Okay. so yeah. was it was just one specific one. Right, right. Okay, very good. Well, let's go move on to question number 10. And as I said, question number 10, as we uh, see throughout the catechism here, there's a a good and wonderful connection uh, and flow to the questions and answers. So question 10 is building off of and focusing on one aspect of question number 9, and that in particular is the personal properties of the persons of the Godhead. So let's read that question together as you see it there on your handout. What are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? It is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. Very good. So we see here kind of two big focus questions. Um, one regarding the Son and the other regarding the Holy Spirit. And that is, what does it mean that Jesus is begotten of the Father? And the second question really is, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son? Okay, and so let's take a look at what begotten means. And I did put um, some explanation and notes here so that you can have reference Okay, um, the the word begotten, okay, or only begotten, as is uh, referenced and translating the Greek word monogenes, okay, and and um, uh, several translations use monogenes and say only begotten, okay. Some of more recent translations, more modern translations, have taken out begotten and just say only. Okay, so when you see passages like, and we're going to look at them here in a second, but John 1:14, for example, uh, John 3:16, 16, um, you might find that your translation only has only instead of only begotten, okay, but what does monogenes, this Greek word, what does it mean? Well, it's a, it's a compound word, really of two words, and mono means only, and genēs means begotten. Okay, so that's where uh, those translations that do have only begotten um, uh, have that in English. So monogenēs it refers to only begotten by particular, peculiar ge- uh, generation. Okay, simply put, it means coming forth from. Okay, and we'll consider more important details about this in a moment. Um, some of the um, some of the ways that people have tried to explain it have been using illustrations like how animals procreate and beget other animals of their kind, right um, and how a horse begets a horse, how a cow begets a cow, how a, how a human begets another human. Um, I think there's some limitations to that in, in uh, really, seeking to understand how uh, and what is meant by Christ being only begotten of the Father because um, of the nature of who they are, and uh, it's not a one-to-one parallel to try to make those type of connections. But we'll talk more about that in a moment. So monogenes and only begotten, those English words, are used in the Nicene Creed when Christ is confessed to be the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Right, That is the statement that we confess regarding Christ. And so Scripture teaches, and the Nicene Creed rightly states, that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Now, as I've mentioned in other classes, we run into... Um, it's not a, a real recent, but we've seen it rise up in uh, the not-too-distant past, and that is the, uh, the teaching and the error of the eternal subordination of the sun. Let's um, uh, make the acronym of ESS. Um, you may read that in different blog posts or articles, theological articles. Um, and that is a, a problem because it is taking aspects of what is true of the economic trinity and the, the roles and the works of the persons of the Godhead in the economy of redemption and it's trying to apply that to the ontological trinity and to his being, right? And that's really where that, that heresy or that teaching becomes a problem. Um, but when we're talking about him being eternally begotten of the Father or the, the, the idea of eternal generation, um, that is different. That's a, that's a biblical truth that we're going to look at here specifically. But before we dive into more of the theological aspects, I do want to look at um, some scripture references here. And let's first look at Hebrews chapter 1. If somebody could grab that. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. I got, it. got it? Go for it. Okay, so besides this passage being a wonderful passage and really showing forth and putting forth the deity of Christ, right, and um, that the Son is truly God, He is worshipped, right? The angels worship Him. Um, your throne, O God, right, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. So wonderful passage, uh, you know, maker. Make a note, make a reference if you ever want to uh, bring that up or in conversation or, or study that in the future. Have that in your mind. But here we do see in uh, this passage as well where uh, it's referring to God, uh, the Father, declaring to the Son. right? Especially if you look in verse 5, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. He never said anything like that to the angels. <laughs> That was only a statement made to his son because um, that is true uh, regarding the father and the son. And so we we see this action of the father and the son. Right. And so this is where uh, we see the divines then saying, yes, it is right to to say scripture teaches it is proper to the father to beget the son. Right. Today I've begotten you. Um, is the language they're used in verse 5. So let's look in John. And we'll look both in the Gospel of John in two of the verses uh, next and 1 John in his first epistle. So John chapter 1. And if somebody could grab 14 through 18 and then John 3.16 somebody can recite that from memory I would hope and if somebody else could grab First John 4 9 1 John 4:9. who has John 1 14 through 18 go for it and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth John bore witness of him and cried out saying this was he of whom I said he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared. Okay, very good. Very good. So we see here twice, at the beginning of the in verse 14 and also at the end of this passage in verse 18, Um, that Christ is referred to the only begotten Son and in 14, the only begotten of the Father. John 3.16. What does John 3.16 say? Kids, do you know it? For God so loved the world. Can you say it? That's yeah, that's the right one. Let's say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Very good, Kim. Yeah, so again we see testimony that Christ is the only begotten son of God. 1 John chapter 4 Go for it. Okay, very good. Yeah, so we see um, we see the same language here, um, and like I said, there are translation differences in in either having begotten or not, um, but we see that again, Christ is. Uh, referred to and declared as His only begotten Son here who God the Father sent into the world that we might live through Him. Very good. That agrees, of course, with what we just uh, said from John 3.16, doesn't it? Alright, so it is true that the Father begets the Son. It is true that the Son is the only begotten of the Father. But thirdly, the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. Okay? And one of the things that we need to recognize uh, before we dive into that passage or those two passages, you can turn to John 15:26. somebody else to Galatians 4, 6. But while you're turning there, one of the things that I do want to point out is as why Why do the divines call these personal properties, right? Well, as we've just been studying the previous questions about the attributes of God, all of those attributes are true of all three of the persons, right? All of those attributes are true of all three of the persons. It's not that the Father had some of those attributes and the Son didn't or the Spirit didn't. No, they all have all of those divine attributes, okay? Communicable and, incommu- the communicable and the incommunicable. And so when we're talking about personal properties, it's personal because we see this uh, the, these differences between the Father begetting, the Son being begotten, and the Spirit proceeding, right? Those are unique to each three of those persons respectively, right? Okay, so the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, I, I listed two passages here. There are many others that we could uh, we could pull and, and identify and look at and study in regards to um, the Spirit being uh, proceeding from the Father and the Son. But these two we'll look at here this morning. Who has John 15:26? Go ahead and read it. Very good. So what does it mean that the Spirit proceeds here? We can see this even in that language that was just read in this passage. Simply put, it means sent. Right? It means sent. The Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son. We do see that the, um, the Spirit is also referred to um, in some passages as the Spirit of Christ, right? Christ's Spirit, right? And so there is that aspect and the connection there that you see in that Christ said, what would the Spirit do when the Helper comes, right? What would He do? He would testify of Christ. In other passages, He would teach them uh, of, about Him and His ways, right? So... Um, we we see this connection and the Spirit pointing people to Jesus, right? That is that is one of His uh, duties and works, is that He points people to Christ. He testifies of Christ. All right, let's look at uh, let's read uh, Galatians four six. Yes. Very good. So again, we see the same language. He was sent. And what did in in that connection that I just spoke of? Right. He is the spirit of his son. Right. So the Holy Spirit is a distinct person in the Godhead. But we see that he proceeds from the father and the son. He is sent by the father and the son. And we also then thirdly see um, a connection between him and Christ and what he testifies of and bears witness of. Very good. Any questions about any of this so far or any of these passages that we've looked at? Okay, so we can see these personal properties, right, Uh, uh, pertaining to each of the three persons. But how long have they existed? How long has this been true? Was there an origination point, right? And the the divines and the catechism, Scripture teaches, know it's from all eternity. Let's look at John seventeen five. If you see John uh, speaks in even declaring the words of Christ, right? Um, but John uh, teaches us much about these truths. John 17:5. there we read, And now, O Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Right? In other words, saying, before all eternity. Right? Um, in the incarnation of Christ, um, we see what? That when Christ condescended to us, when Christ took on flesh, He set aside his glory, right? The glory that he's had from all eternity in order to uh, become man. And so here we see him praying to the Father, saying, Glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. So it exists from all eternity. Same chapter, verse 24, when Christ prays for all believers. In this high priestly prayer here, right? Father, I desire... And this is a continuation of it. The other was too. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So so we, we see even the love of the Father that he had for the Son... Um, being from all eternity, right? But we see also the connection in that, uh, being connected with his personal properties here. So wonderful truths about our triune God, wonderful truths about Christ. Um, And even as uh, question nine and the, the proof text that we studied last week really show forth Uh, the wonderful biblical truth of the Trinity, of the persons in the Godhead, um, and uh, of of their deity, um, and where the heresies are just stark contrasts that are just silly and foolish. Um, They're wicked because they go against all that Scripture does reveal to us. We see even here in question 10 in the study of these personal properties, Uh, wonderful truths um, that even go on to further expand our wonder and awe uh, at the Godhead and the persons of the Godhead. All right, well, let's turn the page there on your handout, and uh, actually, before we we get into that, I do want to uh, read something here and share this with you, and this is regarding eternal generation, okay? Okay. uh, this is taken from, these are a few paragraphs taken from a table talk devotion entitled, What is Eternal Generation? Okay. And this is what those paragraphs say. This is written by Matt Barrett. There is another term that conveys the concept of generation, begotten. Perhaps you've heard the word used when reading those long genealogies in the Bible, So-and-so begat so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so. But John applies this language to Jesus as well, referring to him as the only begotten Son of God, and he references uh, these verses that we've just looked at in the Gospel of John. This begotten language, however, long predates the King James Bible. Way back into the 4th century, the church fathers who wrote the Nicene Creed used it as well, made reference to that also. For example, the Nicene Creed says we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, begotten of the Father before all time. This is the one undivided God that we are talking about here. Therefore, for the Son to be begotten from the Father means that God is begotten from God. Which is why the Creed confesses the Son to be true God from true God. To confess the Son as true God from true God is not an overstatement, since He is, we dare not forget, co-substantial with the Father. Uh, Excuse me, consubstantial with the Father. Consubstantial means the Son is equal to the Father in every way from the same essence or substance as the Father, no less divine than the Father. But we can only affirm such co-equality if the Son is begotten from the Father's essence. For if the Son is not begotten from the Father, the divine essence can't subsist in the Son. Furthermore, generation alone is what distinguishes the Son as Son. There is not some other concept or function or activity in the Trinity that distinguishes the person of the Son from the person of the Father. Generation alone can, for it alone conveys the nucleus of sonship. There is no small point, because without gen- this is no small point, because without generation, not only is there no son, but there is no trinity. As the Calvinist John Gill warns, without his eternal generation, no proof can be made of his being a distinct divine person in the Godhead. Without generation, we fall headfirst into Sabellianism, which we looked at at the beginning of the class. For what previously distinguished the Son from the Father is dissolved, and as a result, the persons are conflated until there is no plurality of persons at all. Okay, so eternal generation is important. You can think of it as making that distinction in persons as well, and we already discussed what begotten means as well, but just wanted to read that to you, and I thought it it was a helpful summary that kind of puts some of the things that we've been talking about together. All right, so let's look at question 11. And we're just going, you know what, actually, we won't. We're going to stop there. There's a lot in question eleven; it'll be best kept for next time. So, Um, so uh, why don't we just? I'll open the floor once again for questions before we close. Are there any final questions here in regards to the end of nine or ten and the personal properties of the Godhead? Anything? Yeah, Jerry. So if they if the Trinity were three separate distinct gods that were not one God they could rebel against each other or have bad characteristics attributed to them. Sure. I mean in some sense it would be I mean you could you could equate it to uh, the Greek pantheon right, of gods, right? I mean, Zeus and the and the whole myriad. I mean, if they're just independent gods, yeah, they may be of one substance, the same substance, like Tritheism reports. But, I mean, they could, even though they're maybe on the same level as one another, so to speak, they could be at odds with each other. I mean, that, that could be within the realm of possibility, sure. Well, Jerry, that would be exactly... <coughs> Argument that theological views of uses it to the Muslims <coughs> in the beginning of Islam, is Islam, in Christianity, uh, can't be just having multiple gods. That was actually the sort of primary arguments, of course, from a Greek guy Islam Islam. Right. Um, <laughs> sure that has made this law. Right. Jared, I was the exact part of this. Mm-hmm. Oh. mm-hmm. Guys in that camp, how, do we how do how do you view the authors that would that would support ESS or <laughs> yeah? I tension of okay, not everything else that's saying is wrong, but I'm sure that would be the case with Ariets or whoever. Mm-hmm right I, I mean I mean on the one hand right do we do we agree with everything that Luther thought no um, do we agree with a lot of it yeah modern theologians do we agree with um, the majority of what a particular man may hold but not on other things? Yes I would say, there needs to be extreme caution or you need to have caution when reading authors that are uh, dipping their feet into, or maybe they're just fully swimming in heretical views because you need to understand that it's not just um, that particular doctrine that they could have the issue on. You need to also understand that if they hold to a position on one doctrine that is, what's, where's the undergirding and the foundation and, and the connections then with, with what they're believing then about other doctrines if they're being consistent, right? And so sometimes we see these things, we're like, okay, I'm just keeping my eyes open for that. But we need to also understand that their, their worldview and their understanding of Scripture and their the, the lens by which they're looking at Scripture is also going to be tainted and structured even by things that undergird how they got to that particular position. So I would say we need to be very cautious. Yeah. Right. So Pastor, why what, what, what's your answer to many of our friends on the other side? You know, our, our general evangelical friends like y'all are just getting talked up about too much. I just love Jesus. I just love God. i not to is, is It's important because this is how God has revealed himself to us. And therefore, it's important because he wants us to understand these details to have a full orbed picture of the truth that. He has given us in the Scriptures, in, in this particular discussion regarding the Trinity and the Godhead about Himself. I mean, it's beautiful if you look at it. It's a beautiful intricacy. It's a it's a beautiful mosaic of just all of these different levels and 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 um, and, and pieces and strands that are all coming together in and showing us who God is, right? And what's true of Him. Um, and so I would say, yeah, I mean, I agree with you in that statement. I would say, sure, I love Jesus too. But I can say that I love Jesus, but who is Jesus, right? And who is God? Who, who, how do we know that the Jesus that I would claim to believe, right, from the scriptures, how can I say that he is the God of the Bible and the Jesus that the Mormons believe in is not, right? Um, or the Jesus that the Jews believe in, or whoever fill in the blank right um, how you know and so we need these to grow in our awe and our understanding of the true living God and of his word, but also to defend against error um, and so I think there's a kind they of a multi purpose uh, uh, that's right that 's right how many times do you want to hear this. Well, to me, fill in my areas <laughs> with treacherous heresy, that is, I feel like <laughs> the Holy Spirit is doing radical disturbing Right. <laughs> right. I mean, some, uh, you've seen some uh, false teachers say, oh, I believe Jesus is like the genie in Aladdin. I, right. I mean, not Jesus, but but <laughs> sorry, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like genie in Aladdin, right? right? Well, did you see it pastor? No. I said false teacher. <laughs> 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 this is exactly the right thing. Also, you know, look, we're not interested in being theology cops, right? Because you can really get torqued up and get super narrow. You don't want to end up like AWP. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a part of it's a part of it's a part of legitimate, sincere discipleship, right? We love God. He calls us to follow his commands. He calls us to live according to his word. He calls us to grow in the knowledge of him. And this is where he's revealed himself to us. And so we need to be feeding and eating and thinking and standing and understanding and growing in the knowledge of him. That's a beautiful thing. So, all right, well, let's go ahead and close in prayer and we'll have some fellowship. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these truths of your word regarding you, regarding your personal properties. We we thank you, O God, for revealing yourself to us, showing us all of these marvelous details. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would be good students and faithful students of your word and that we would praise you and glorify you as you open our eyes to understand these very things and much more. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.